DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn, you're the boss. Disability Disability done done different, different. candid conversations. Hope you're ready because we're starting. Hello and welcome to Disability. Hey, <laughs> and welcome. welcome to Disability Done Different. My name is Evie and I'm back. And I'm the person who's meant to be doing the introduction. <laughs> My name's Roland Northall. I'm the host of Disability Done Different and welcome back, Evie. Thanks, Dad. Aren't you going to ask where I've been? Where have you been? Where haven't I been, Dad? Yeah. <laughs> been to my bedroom, to my desk. We gave her a big bench and parked her on it for a few weeks. <laughs> but she's back. We couldn't keep her on it for long enough. So today our guest is... Annie Riley. In the Northern Territory, Darwin. And something about Darwin, isn't it, Evie? There's a bunch of really, really good women leaders up there. Oh, yeah. Am I allowed to say that? I think so, yeah. 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 I mean, it's not surprising that great women leaders exist, but there is an extraordinarily large number of them in NT. Per capita, it it is dramatically outweighs um, other places we go. Welcome, Annie Riley, CEO of Carpentaria Services. Carpentaria Disability Services is the correct title, isn't it? Well, we are officially called Carpentaria Disability Services, but we refer to ourselves just as Carpentaria. Yeah, so welcome, Annie Riley. So we've got a bunch of questions to ask you, Annie, but I just wanted, I was just reflecting on when I first met you, I think you were like brand new in the job. You hadn't even quite started and you had a mild sense of panic about what, <laughs> do you remember yeah, that? So I do remember meeting you outside yep. um, a hotel on a veranda and you were offering sort of free consults to people. Yes, I do. And I was mildly panicked. <laughs> um, that was in 2017, yes. 2017, so you've been there, gosh, and it's, is it over three years or you're about to hit three years? About to hit three years in June, yes. Wow. And was the uh, mild sense of panic uh, a correct feeling to be having? Has it been a really big job? Look, I think I probably didn't, I probably underestimated how large the job was going to be. Um, transitioning to the NDIS from the, um, from the perspective of the Northern Territory where, you know, we, had, um, we hadn't had a lot of quality and safeguarding, third-party audits happening, um, you know, very much block-funded. We hadn't moved into that individualised model. So it was, there was a lot to be done. And um, the more I looked, the more I saw that we had to do. And I was probably just quite naively thinking I could do everything within six months. But, you know, here I am three years later. We've gotten a lot done, but there's still a lot to do. And, and you were jumping the fence too, weren't you? You were coming from being the block funder to not being yes. the block fundee anymore and that you were very senior. I think you held the most senior, one of the most senior positions in disability in the NT government. And then you've taken yes. one of the most senior positions in the not-for-profit disability sector during that massive transition. So how, how's that gone? I'm going to give Evie a chance to get in in a moment, but how has that gone? <laughs> Yeah, look, I was. I was a senior director of the Office of Disability. Yep. And I guess I saw things, um, it was kind of like a point, like a, almost like a, a path, um, a point in my road where I could actually take a different path. And it was just sort of prior to um, the transition really starting to get going. So I'd had the conversation with my remote team as the senior director um, in the Office of Disability around you know, what was going to happen with the transition. And it was really a good point for me. If I was, if I was going to leave, I had to leave sort of then. Um, yeah, but moving across the, the non-government sector was, it's been quite, um, 
yeah, quite a huge learning curve and, and I've really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I've, well, mostly enjoyed it. It's been very challenging. But, um, and having had worked within government, it's given me a really good perspective. And I, you know, I really think that um, reflecting on, I think everybody who works in government should have a time working in the non-government sector really to get you know, a, a better perspective of what you need to do in government, Yeah, yeah. if that uh, makes sense. Yeah. Are, are you a native Territorian? Do you come? No, I moved to the Territory in 1989. Does anybody come from the Territory? I've yet to meet anybody that said, oh, I'm actually from here. Well, I I feel like I'm a native Territorian, but yes, I've been here a long time. I've kind of been at up for years now. But yeah, 1989, I was, you know, almost a new grad um, speech pathologist. And I came up here for one year. I had a big argument with my mum because she said, you'll never come back from the Territory I said, Mum, one year, I'll be back. Why would I want to live up there forever? <laughs> and, um, yeah, so here I am, 2020, still here. So, I, go on. I reckon the Territory is one of Australia's best-kept secrets. When you hear other people talk about the Northern Territory, you hear all about the weather and the crocodiles and all of that kind of stuff. But I've been so – like Darwin's never a place that you'll have trouble getting me to come. And I always notice when I come to Darwin how different the disability sector is. And, and I haven't. You spent quite a bit of time up in Darwin, haven't you? I have. Yeah, we did quite a bit of work through the Northern Territory government um, in the early stages of transition. And I go back anytime I can get a workshop running up there. Um, but I can't quite put my finger on what the difference is, Annie. And and maybe you have a bit of insight into it. But it does appear to me that in in NT that providers are very collaborative, very willing to work together. And I don't know if I'm being a bit rose-coloured glasses here, but they do seem to have a bit more of a solutions focus than what I see elsewhere. Do you reckon I'm talking nonsense? No, I, I, I agree. Um, yeah, I think being a smaller jurisdiction and being remote from the rest of Australia, we often feel like, um, well, being a small jurisdiction and a small group of people, we can be a lot more collaborative. And we do have a lot of complex challenges that you know, we do have to have that real solution focus. Um, but I think there's always that thing, like when you live in NT, you feel like you're judged by the rest of Australia as being, you know, a bit backward and, and not really knowing what's going on in the rest of the, of the country. So it actually drives you to want to be better than everybody else or, or at least to feel like you, you, know, you need to keep up with everybody. And I think um, from my experience and colleagues that I talk to, you know, we will work really hard because we feel like we're behind on something. And then when we go and talk to others, we find that we're actually not behind and sometimes we are ahead. Um, you know, and sometimes we are behind, I must say. But, you know, I think often we sort of misjudge where we're at in terms of where the rest of Australia is at because we're, we're that little bit removed. But that was one of the things that struck me too, Annie, when I've got a bit of a background in early childhood intervention, how called early childhood early intervention, and I was looking around at um, transdisciplinary best practice around Australia. There's only a few places doing it. This is quite a few years ago. And you folks at Carpentaria were one of the leaders in transdisciplinary early childhood early intervention practice. And now you, you're taking that out to East Island land. Am I getting that right? That's right. Yes, we, um, we are doing remote services. We have um, since 2000, probably middle of 2017, was one of the things that when I first moved into the role, that I really, because Carpentry hadn't been doing remote services before, mm-hmm. that um, I really wanted to ensure that we could be part of the solutions in the, in the remote areas because one of the biggest tragedies of the NDIS would be that if it didn't make a difference in the remote setting. 
So in having been a speechy, my well, probably still am a speechy, but you know, not no longer practicing. But you know, having had that background, um, I could see that that was the area that we should be um, getting you know, getting the services out to remote areas. And so we worked quite diligently in building up rapport and building up trust with um, a number of communities. And um, we found that the model, um, that transdisciplinary model, just worked so well in the remote community as well. Um, Can you tell us why? Annie, what, what is it about transdisciplinary that's working for you there? So I guess if I go back to, so in government, we, we also had a um, transdisciplinary model and we've really brought many of those aspects across to the Carpentaria setting as well. Um, I guess it's that having that key person that works with a family and an individual and with the community. So you have a key therapist who is almost like the broker for the rest of um, the other services that that individual might need. And, um, you know, it builds up really good relationships and trust and consistency. And um, I guess it, it, it just sort of makes the whole process work a lot more streamlined, I guess. Is, is it part of the response, the broader response? I've often wondered because I've seen key worker transdisciplinary practice work so well in early childhood early intervention. I wonder, you know, are you going to have you got plans to grow it into other areas that are non early childhood? Because that concept of the key worker going remote seems to make a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah, well, look, we, we're doing that now. So um, our early child, our allied health team is across all ages now. Um, we've got a team of 14 therapists. And um, our remote work is across all ages. So we, we basically are, are using that across the whole program area. Yeah, into that model already. Yeah. Before we move off the issue of remote, any tips for, for other organisations that are really, because everybody's struggling with the remote delivery of NDIS. Do you have any other tips? You well, can I, guess, I guess that, you know, the, the remote um, service delivery model, that no one's really, that hasn't really, been nutted out properly yet. Um, although people in the territory, are, you know, I'm sure it's in other jurisdictions as well. We really know what the solutions would be, but um, it's really the retrofit onto the NDIS model just doesn't really work. I think there's a few things, and I was sort of talking all around the place here, but um, I know that the NDIS is really centred on choice and control and and all of that, which is absolutely, you know, really really important. I think in a remote setting, though, um, the starting point is equity of access, really. So it's getting those services out to remote areas where there are small numbers. Um, and given that people in remote areas, you know, their decision-making is, isn't as individually based as it is in other cultures. Um, people work as a group, as a family, as a community. Um, and I guess, you know, sort of the, the pooling of plans is, is, is happening, um, and it makes a lot of sense, and it, it does, you know, it, it is the model that needs to be, you know, moved towards. I guess, though, my tips are that, you know, we, we started out, we only had, like, five or six um, participants, but we, our focus was on developing a, a relationship with um, a local organisation and, and the community, the families and the individuals, and being consistent um, and, you know, building up the trust and rapport and being really professional, people in remote areas really expect a professional service, um, just like everybody else does. And um, now we've got um, over 100 participants across five or six different communities now. And, you know, that slow start and that slow build has been what's really 
um, worked for us, but you cannot go in there um, without having a relationship or a partnership with a local organisation. That has been really key for us. And I guess particularly um, with the, you know, the pandemic, that little thing that's happening at the moment, we, you know, we had a, a window of two hours to make a decision as to whether we would um, continue to send somebody out to a community because we had someone booked on a plane to go out and the government was hadn't quite announced it yet, but we're talking about closing off um, remote areas. So we did make the decision to not go because we, you know, we thought that um, we totally believe that the um, the safety of um, people in remote areas is, you know, had to be completely protected. Yeah. So, um, so, so that forced us into that, you know, quick pivot into online uh, service, service delivery and having that wouldn't have worked if we didn't have that really good relationship and rapport and the working relationship with the organisations in those communities. Yeah. Because people, they don't have access to technology. Um, you know, they need that support um, to, you know, to, to be take part mm. in those um, online therapy Session. Yeah, I want to jump in there, Annie, and just sort of pick up on, on where you're going here, which is sort of the other understanding of remote services, which is what's on everybody's mind at the moment with COVID-19 forcing a lot of services, you know, almost overnight to continue to deliver services in a non-face-to-face way. And I guess I'm wondering, has your experience with, you know, that first type of remote services, people living very far out from the hub of your organisation, do you think that's put you in better stead to pivot now to delivering services non-face-to-face? Yeah, so going forward, um, we will definitely um, continue with what we're doing, but a mix, obviously. So we see um, the online as not... Not necessarily to re- like you know in the future, not necessarily replacing the face to face, but adding to. So what the therapists are finding is that um, obviously the face to face, when we can do that, is really really important. But then you know instead of because we do visits every six weeks, so they can touch base on a weekly basis now um, with people um, to see how they're going and have even sometimes it's just a quick fifteen minute or twenty minute um, you know contact. So that they can um, keep therapy going, or you know, just check on certain things, the pieces of equipment that they've got, etc. So, I think I hope, I'm hoping that answers your question. But um, we were, I think, there was something that we wanted to do. COVID nineteen forced us to do it much faster than we would have, and we're we're actually very thankful for that because we we can see the value in um, in, in having a, access to that online service and that you know more ongoing connection with people in remote areas. Taking the conversation in a bit further with COVID-19, are there changes that you've gone through over the last few weeks that you want, you want to see stick now? Have you seen any new things emerge that you think, oh, I want to hold on to this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there's, there's been, well, that is one, for example, which yeah. is quite a big thing for us. Um, we're also, even just locally, we've been doing, um, because we, we, we moved to a mixed, um, therapy approach where again it was some face to face and you know some not face to face. So what we did um, with the, with everything that was happening with the pandemic as a, a committee, but we set up our pandemic committee and we made some very critical decisions around you know decisions about the framework we would use to make decisions because it was a such a fast changing environment that we were seeing other organisations, other businesses. Um, 
you know, making really quite rapid and extensive changes quickly, that it, it put a lot of pressure on, on us to, to be seen to be doing the right thing. So we just, we just said our, all our decisions are evidence-based. You know, we need to know what the evidence is in, in the territory um, and, um, and our decisions obviously would be based on what the government, um, the territory government and the national government are saying, as well as um, the, MT, the NDI's Quality and Safeguarding Commission and the NDIA, and, you know, and, and being really clear that we are an essential service. So, you know, we had that framework that we were working in, and I can tell you that we were meeting sometimes two or three times a day to check in on the decisions we were making. So getting back to your question, so in the day program, I think that was our highest risk area. We, not just in the day program, but in other areas, we um, risk assess our services and we risk assess individuals as well and then tailored our services for those people because the families, and we kept the families were also part of um, those decisions and the families, you know, were really, really... Um, anxious about us stopping services you know there was it was going to cause a lot of problems for them and how so, do you stop services and has the day service stayed open for anybody the day service has definitely stayed open um we changed our services completely to one-on-one mm -hmm. so we did that basically overnight we went from you know we had small group activities we weren't like a big there were no sort of big group activities but we went to one-on-one -on -one. um you know we worked we risk assessed like I said, in terms of what CTE was needed. Um, we've put in a whole range of measures in terms of um, infection control uh, and really just worked with it. And we were making decisions, like I said, two or three times a day and then on a daily basis. I remember when we got to the point where I said, okay, it's Monday. I'm, I'm sure we can stick, stick with this till Wednesday. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> um, but honestly, I think... Having taken that approach and the, the support I had of the team around me, um, I'm really pleased that we didn't um, stop those services. And we, we could have, and I and I'd probably, probably get a lot of criticism for saying this, but I think for me the easy thing would have been from where I was sitting and you know trying to sleep at night would have been to shut those services down because then I just mitigated all the risk mm -hmm. totally for me and for my organisation. But we, um, you know, were very, very mindful of what impact that was going to have on the participants and um, their families and, you know, a whole range of things. So, yeah, we took that approach and we're still we're still working in that way, the one-on-one, -on -one, and we've got um, – we have the advantage of this, you know, building that we're in. I know you've both seen this building. And um, so, we, you know, we've basically spread everybody out as well so we can have a lot of um, social distancing and, you know, where possible. Sometimes some people, you, you know, you need to be – um, you can't actually have that social distancing happening. But, you know, we, and we did a lot of work building the capacity um, of our participants. Just before this meeting, um, I ran into one of our, our young men that we provide support for um, who has autism and um, an intellectual disability. And she, you know, hello, hello, says to me, and up comes the elbow to do a, you know. So, you know, they, he totally gets that there's no more handshaking and, um, high fives, I think, were his preferred um, greeting. But it was really good to see that that sort of thing is becoming sort of fairly normal. I think a lot of us are looking to the Northern Territory because you guys are at zero cases of um, new COVID and wondering, are you, you going to be the exemplars of what the rest of us coming out of the, the new, new cases that we're still seeing in Victoria, 
are going to look like. And so are, are you starting to start to think about strategy? And I recently saw a commentary from someone that said coming out of COVID will be non-linear. And, I, and I've been, it's been sticking with in my brain ever since. Coming out of COVID is going to be all over the shop. It's not just going to be a simple, we just gradually bring back things the way they always were. With social distancing, that is not going to happen. Are you starting to think about strategy? Are you starting to think about the future of your services? And I just want to jump into and maybe make it a two-part question, Annie, which is that yeah. um, we've heard well, we've heard some people in the Territory say that in some ways COVID is business as usual, that in fact you're quite used to communities being shut down and having these kind of lockdown protocols is not as foreign for a lot of Territorians as it is for um for the rest of the country and I was just reflecting on this conversation dad and I were having earlier where he was saying no one's ever come out of lockdown before and I was just thinking well maybe some organizations have experienced something like that. Yeah, they've never come out well, to social distancing that no one's yeah. ever experienced in what um, the Northern Territory is, is starting to experience now so Annie? Yeah, um, yeah that's a, a complex question so there's a, <laughs> a few things in that I think in terms of the culture in the territory and being used to, and I'm not saying specifically, um, you know, the social distancing, but you know, when what the first thing I grabbed when we, you know, really started getting down into the detail about, or you know, getting, you know, rolling up a sleeve and going, we've got to get some more planning in place um, with the pandemic, was our cyclone procedures, mm-hmm. yeah. and um, really, I mean, obviously, cyclones they come and they go and it's, it's quick, but every year, territorians get themselves ready for a disaster. So, you know, I know it's different what we do, but I think the mindset is there in the Territory. So, you know, people um, are used to, you know, what a cyclone watch is and then mm-hmm. moving to cyclone warning. So we were sort of thinking, okay, this is like a cyclone watch when we were watching the cases build each day um, and we knew that once it got to community spread, which like, thankfully it didn't, um, that would be when we would move into our warning sort of stage. Mm. Um, so having said that, I think there is that and people do have to um, lock down, I guess, when the cyclone comes, but it's only for a few days and then they come out and look at what the, what you know, what trees they've got left and all that sort of stuff. But, so I'm not probably not completely answering your question, but I think um, in terms of strategy going forward, we've got obviously our disability services and I was talking to one of my colleagues a moment ago about because um, we have conference rooms here as well that we... Um, we rent out and we do catering, etc. So, you know, really having to think strategically about how we're going to use those um, rooms going forward. And we've, we've actually just got our first booking uh, for next week. So, and we're actually doing a practice run this Friday. So we've got three um, quite large conference rooms that we'll be setting up with the, the four metre um, distance between each person and and testing how that works. So that's sort of one sort of thing that we need to look at. But I guess we've kept in really close contact with all our staff through SMS messaging, um, you know, and, and emailing, et cetera, and, and really getting out and talking to people about embedding this culture of infection control and um, and the social distancing, the physical distancing. And, and my, my message to my staff has been, you know, I, I, not just me, but Carpenteria is relying on you to do what you need to do so that we can continue to support people in the way, in a safe way. So that's been my message to my staff ongoing. So, and I think we've been really lucky that, you know, I think not just the Territory, but for my organisation, um, my staff have really 
you know, taken it on board really quickly, everything that they needed to do and, um, you know, put in place all those practices that you need to, to have at your houses, your day program. And, you know, we have whole positions where people just clean all day. They just continuously, like in the day program, because you can't, there are certain things you can't get participants to, to do, you know, in terms of the infection control. For some people, that's just a challenge that's just a bit too far to go. So um, it's just continuously wiping down doorknobs, wiping down benches, wiping down um, you know, things that are being touched all the time. So, yeah, we've, and those things, you know, my, my um, manager in the day program is going, this is amazing. We're going to keep doing this. But, you know, I hadn't really considered doing things this way before. And, and particularly the, the one-on-one, the difference that we're seeing with participants uh, and the outcomes they're getting and then the, and, it, and the feedback from families saying, you know, we don't want to go back to group activities. We want to keep this at one-to-one because they're seeing the changes in individuals. That's fantastic. So I've talked for a long time there. I answered the question. Yeah, yeah, that's great, Annie. Almost anybody who's visited the Northern Territory and got caught there at the beginning or the the middle of the wet season says, I'm never going back, but you've stayed. Why have you stayed and and why do other people stay through what can be some pretty difficult um, weather conditions? Yeah. Yes. Well, one thing, I try not to recruit people in the wet season <laughs> because, because of that, because, um, but, you know, it doesn't always work like that. I think there's two or three, from my perspective and my experience, there's two or three different people that come to the Territory. So there's, there's people and everyone's got a story of recruiting someone from down south and they come they come up and they get, on, get off the plane and they basically, you know, not literally, but pretty much turn around and get back on the plane and go back down south. <laughs> Um, and, you know, that just doesn't work out, and you know it was never going to work out. So um, there's that person, and then there's others that come, and, you know, and I probably fit into this category myself that, you know, you get here and, and um, you know, you're prepared to give it a go and you're prepared to roll up the sleeves and, and get involved, and then from that point you really start to see, this is from a work perspective, um, the opportunities that, that you could have if you really want to, um, you know, stay here and, and, and work here in the Territory. Um, you know, and I think there's always a little bit of, particularly people who are coming from um, larger um, jurisdictions that come up here and, you know, I recently in government, probably over three years ago, I rec- recruited um, a young man who was you know, an amazing, an amazing person and really, really good at um, the work that he did. He basically came in to the organisation, into the, into the government, and it was kind of like he looked around and said, well, where's my team? <laughs> I was like, well, no, I don't know. Is this you? You're, you're, the, you're the team and I'll be working with you and we'll be doing everything you need to do. So this was, you know, part of the NDIS transition. And, um, you know, so once people get over that shock and go, right, okay, I'm here, I'm going to do this and I'm going to take up the opportunities. And, and you do, you get, if you're willing to take on challenges, um, you and you, because we're a small jurisdiction, we don't always have the resources that we need. We don't always have um, access to you know teams of experts. So you know you've got to get across everything. So you've got to learn really fast, and you've got to um, you know be able to. So you know in the role I was in as a senior director, you've got to be able to front um, national meetings and and know everything. And and you know, we're in other jurisdictions jurisdictions for. Um, different subject areas, different policy areas. There'll be a whole team mm. that's working on reading all the material and, and you know getting their expert opinions and positions and stuff 
uh, whereas in the Territory, we'd rock up to the telepresence meetings and it'd always be the same two or three of us that are there, you know, as, as rocking up as experts in all different areas that yeah, yeah. um, we've just had to get across. And I guess, I guess it's that kind of working environment that really um, gives you a, a really good breadth of um, experience and, and knowledge that you wouldn't get access to as quickly as you do in, a, in other jurisdictions. So that now this that third type of person that comes to the Territory. Oh, yeah, so there, there are people who come to the Territory really as, and, you know, and this isn't a bad thing, this is a positive thing, um, that will move to the Territory with a very clear um, plan to, to plan. Um, work in a role as a, as a step up to another role back home. Wow. Back in, you know, where they don't really come here and see the Northern Territory as, as their home, but they'll, they'll come to get that experience two or three years and then it is a really good stepping stone for people. Getting towards the end of the podcast, Annie, I'd like to finish where we started and ask you about how you're travelling, how it's all going with COVID-19. You didn't sign up three years ago to be managing a service during a pandemic. No one expected it. You might have expected a cyclone, I suppose, quite reasonably, but not um, COVID. How, how are you travelling with it all? Um. Look, I just I just took a week off because I was I was really needing to have um, some mental health therapy for myself. Good um, yeah, look, I think I think it, it has been really like I was saying before. I think you know that pressure of um, having to make decisions really quickly and then just saying two or three times a day. That's what you were saying, yeah. Yeah, two or three times a day, and um, but you know, you, you on one hand, you know, you, you're trying to keep your services going. And you're concerned about the, the staff as well as the participants, um, as well as you know keeping everybody safe. So that you know it's quite a complex environment to be working in, and I I did find it extremely stressful. Um, I've had lots and lots of um, experiences in my career where I've I felt like the only thing I can really get right is to get up and go to work because you know, it's just been so, so difficult that, you know, how do you keep going? You just get up in the morning and you go to work and then, you know, you keep working through things one little bit at a time. Um, and surprisingly, this was probably, yeah, right up there is one of the most um, challenging things that I've had to work through. And I think once we got through to a point where we felt things were at least that we knew what was happening on a day-to-day -day basis without having to continually make new decisions, um, then I kind of relaxed a bit and, and, and I did, I took a break and I'm encouraging my staff to take a break where they can and, and really look after themselves because I think you just don't realise that what pressure you're under. You come to work and you do what you need to do but we're working in you know, such a changed environment and the whole world has changed and, and people in the Territory are finding it really hard. Um, we're always you know, sort of fairly remote and cut off from the rest of our family but now knowing that you really just can't get to see people. I've got a son who lives in Brisbane and, you know, I'm not sure when I'm going to be able to see him again. So, yeah, so it's, it's been a difficult time. But, um, but yeah, we're, we're going well. I'm lucky to have such a supportive team around me. And Carpenter, are incredibly lucky to have you, Annie. Thank you so much for um, joining us from, from Darwin for COVID Conversations. It's, it's been lovely talking to you. Thanks, Annie. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. It was great. Thank you very much.
You've been listening to Disability Done Different COVID Conversations, a podcast by DSC that's produced by Maya Thomas. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe at teamdsc.com.au slash podcast. That's right. We've got a URL that doesn't take 20 minutes to say out loud. It's teamdsc.com.au slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've liked it, feel free to give us a five-star review.